Today we'd like to talk about, we're moving into the actual communion part of Mass. The, we've stood at the foot of the cross with John and Mary, and now we're getting into what's the Our Father, the Lamb of God, the Rite of Peace, and Communion. You know, one of the great things that happens every four years is the Olympics. And I remember my first Olympics that I ever saw was in the summer of 1992. I was 11 years old, the first one I remember, and this was in Barcelona. And I think there was a big news about this Olympics, too, because we had the American Dream Team, the first time professional athletes could actually compete. And so Nebraska's basketball team, or U.S. basketball team, we hope Nebraska basketball team. The U.S. basketball team just totally dominated that summer Olympics. And as I was watching, and maybe you remember this, um, this happened to be in the semifinals for the 400. And there was a great sprinter from England by the name of Sean Redman. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Uh, it's a famous video. But he's running the 400 in the semifinals, and he gets about 150 meters in. And all of a sudden, you hear the crowd just gasp and a pop. He pops his hamstring. Now, if you've ever, like, you know, pulled your hamstring apart and how painful that is, and he could not finish the race, and he goes down to the ground and he's in tears. He wants to finish the race, but he doesn't think he can. I mean, he was one of the favorites. To win. I mean, maybe not the final, but he was at least going to make it to the final, the top eight in the world. And as he goes down, there's a man from the stands, starts running down the stands, and the guards are trying to stop him. And he gets through the guards, and they try to tackle him, and he said, that's my son. And the father runs out, and he picks up his son, and he says, I will help you cross the finish line. And isn't that the story for us in humanity? Because, see, by our own original sin of Adam and Eve, we too are crippled. We could not cross the finish line, the goal line of heaven. And we have a father in heaven who sends down his son to pick us up so that we can cross the finish line. And this is why when Jesus' apostles, they ask him to, we want to learn how to pray. John John the Baptist, he taught his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives us the most beautiful of all prayers. The Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. And it's beautiful, this, and we, won't, we don't have time to go into it, but I encourage you to read the catechism, the, the different petitions of the Our Father. First, we are directed towards who God is, the Father, all glory in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then what he does for us, give us this day our daily bread. The bread's already been here, now give it to us, Father, And what father would hand his son a snake when he asks for a fish, right? Our father gives us not always what we want, but always what we need. And what we need is his son, Jesus. And so he asks us to give us this day, we ask him to give us this day our daily bread. And then we ask him to forgive us our sins, because we recognize we're sinful, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And then in the the Mass goes on what's called the, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. You know, it's interesting that this is not actually in the scriptures, right? It was kind of a side addition in one of the manuscripts. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And we find it in the Mass. And so Protestants who are Bible alone believers, they add this to the Lord's Prayer. But you're like, where is that in the Bible? I mean, it's just the whole irony. They take it from our tradition. Anyways, St. Francis de Sales, he uses this image about the father. He says, he tells us, think about little children who are walking with their dad. With one hand, they hold fast to their father. With their other hand, they can go through the little 
orchard picking berries, playing with sticks or throwing stones. If we handle the goods, affairs, and problems of the world with one hand, we must hold fast to our Heavenly Father with the other hand. We should look up at him from time to time to see if we're pleasing to our Father. We do this through prayer and the sacraments and through obeying his commandments and his teachings of the church. Above all, though, we should never let go of his hand by direct disobedience to his will or laziness in our spiritual life. Oftentimes we think, well, if we had two hands, we can get more work done. We could let go of the Father's hand, and I can do it myself. I mean, we call that heresy, plaging him. I do this, and I work for God, and he's going to bless me. But if we have our hand, one hand holding the Father, we have the other hand to do the work. We must constantly hold the hand of our Heavenly Father. Next, we move into what's called the right of peace. Jesus, when he tells his apostles, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. When he conquers sin on the cross, he resurrects from the dead, and he conquers death. And he comes to the apostles and he breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. My peace I give you, my peace I leave you. Pope Pius XI in 1925 wrote uh, a beautiful encyclical about Christ the King. And this is when he instituted the feast day of Christ the King Sunday. And he said, and I quote, The manifold evils in the world were due to the fact that the majority of men had thrust Jesus Christ and his holy laws out of their lives that these had no place either in private or public affairs. He's talking about, at the time, 1925, the rise of communist governments, atheist governments, Nazism, and these governments who all try to want to bring peace into the world, but they do it through force. But he goes on to say, he says, as long as individuals and states refuse to submit to the ruler of the Savior... There will be no really hopeful prospect for lasting peace among nations. We must look for the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. End quote. See, oftentimes we look for peace in the world. And it doesn't really bring us the lasting peace. The only peace that really comes is through the peace of Jesus Christ. Peace I give you. Not as the world gives, but as I give to you, he says. One spiritual book that I encourage you to take up, and maybe some of you have already read, is Jacques Philippe, Searching for and Maintaining Peace. And he's talking about the peace, how the Holy Spirit can work in your life. And he uses this analogy that if you look at a lake on a beautiful, calm day, it reflects the sun. There's nothing more beautiful than you're sitting out there casting a line, getting the big fish on a beautiful, peaceful lake that is completely calm. It reflects the sun, it reflects the sky, it reflects everything. But imagine if the wind picks up, the lake becomes disturbed, it's choppy, it cannot reflect the sun. That's because it doesn't have the peace. See, you and I are supposed to reflect the sun too, the Son of God. And when we are agitated in our life, whether it's because of work or we have a a nagging employee or we have uh, someone in our life that just really disrupts our peace, we cannot reflect Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tells us, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also tells us, if you're offering your gift at the altar, which we do, we bring up the offertory, And you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother. And then come back and offer your gift. Oftentimes we don't have peace in our life because we're holding a grudge against someone who has hurt us or we've hurt them. 
in order to enter deeper into the mystery of the peace of Jesus in the Eucharist, brothers, we have to be able to forgive our brothers outside of Mass. And this is why St. Peter urges the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Greet one another with a loving kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, sometimes we encounter people who do not like to shake hands. They're kind of like the germaphobes. And I always, <laughs> I always remind them, like, well, we can go back to the ancient days where we give each other kisses on the, on the cheek. I mean, we, we could be a little bit more intimate if you wanted to. But no, I mean, it's good that we have the handshake, right? But the kiss of peace was first given at the altar. The priest would turn and give the kiss of peace to the deacons. And then they would go out and give it to the, the people in the crowd. And then it would kind of spread. And you'd kind of wait for it to go. And so it shows first that the peace comes from Christ at the altar. And it spreads throughout the whole church. After the sign of peace, we have what's called the Lamb of God, right? And we know this. I mean, this is what John the Baptist he points out to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why the Lamb? Of course, we know what lambs were used for in the Old Testament. The lambs were the victims. The lamb had to be slaughtered. In the Passover, the lamb was first slaughtered, and then it had to be consumed. You had to take the blood of the lamb and you had to spread it upon the doorpost, both the vertical and horizontal, and then you had to eat the lamb. And then the angel of death would pass over you. Well, that's precisely what happens for us. See, all Christians believe that Jesus takes away our sins by his death on the cross, but not all Christians believe that you have to eat the lamb. The Passover has to come over us. Death has to come over us. And we do that when we eat the, the Lamb of God. I mean, this is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Amen, amen, I say to you, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times. Jesus never repeats himself five times. He's allowing himself to be the new law. See, the old law, there were, four, or there were five books of the Torah. Jesus is the new law. If you eat my body and drink my blood, even though you will die, I will pass over you and raise you up on the last day. The new Passover. This is what's beautiful about being Catholic. And as the prophet Isaiah says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent and opened not his mouth. When we slaughter animals, what happens? Cattle kick, pigs squeal, chickens run around like their heads cut off, right? Goats cry like babies, but a lamb is silent. It just stays there. And that's what Christ was. He was silent before Pontius Pilate. And oftentimes in our life, we don't hear the voice of Jesus He's silent. And we think because he is silent, he doesn't care about us. But if we remember his love on the cross, we remember that oftentimes love is silent. After the Lamb of God, we have the time for communion. And communion is what we call the greatest of all intimacies with God. When I was a freshman in college, I was in a fraternity and I was kind of kind of falling away from the faith a little bit. I mean, it was all about the parties and the girls. And I had a good Protestant brother ask me, Hey, Clark, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? How do you answer that? I mean, I've never been asked that. Maybe you guys have been asked that before. I'm like, well, you know, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed a bank. I think I'm a good person. No, do you have a personal relationship? Well, what's that mean to have a personal relationship? I don't know. I mean, sure, I kind of know who he is. And so I, I remember going down to the Newman Center, the old Newman Center, and if you guys remember that, the blue lights coming in. It's kind of the first time I really heard the voice of God. I said, you know, God, I don't know what this means to have a personal relationship, but do I have a personal relationship with you? And he said, no. 
you have something so much more. See, we as Catholics can have personal relationships with Uncle Bob and Aunt Betty. But intimacy is something more. And this is what God told me. He's like, as a Catholic, you have intimacy. That when you come and receive Jesus Christ in the flesh, you are the bride of Jesus. The two become one, the one flesh union. You have intimacy with God. But then he told me, and you're an unfaithful spouse, by the way. I got to get my soul to confession. Okay. So when we come to communion, we find Christ in the intimacy that he gives us. You know, there were only three different types of people who ever found the infant Jesus. You ever contemplated this? Of the millions of people on the earth, when Jesus was born, there were only three different types of people that ever found him. We have the faithful, Mary and Joseph. They were faithful to their covenant. We have the simple. We have the shepherds. They were basically these poor, uneducated men in the fields who the angels revealed God's glory to them, and so they went to go and worship Jesus. Then we have the wise men, and these wise men who brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's interesting. The faithful find God because they know the message is true. The simple soul finds God because they know that they know nothing. The wise men find God because they do not know everything. Well, I think it's also, we could say this today, there's only three different types of people who recognize Jesus in the Eucharist. We have those that are faithful to their vows, faithful to their spouse, faithful to their kids, faithful to their jobs. If you're faithful in what you're called to do, you're going to see Jesus in the Eucharist. We have those who are simple. If you're not distracted with the things of this world, of trying to get ahead or have more toys than the next guy next to you, if you remain simple, you're going to recognize that's Jesus in the Eucharist because he's so simple that he desires to reveal himself in bread and wine to us. And if you become wise, meaning if you constantly study the faith, allow the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to penetrate your soul, to see the things that God sees them. As man sees it, it looks like bread. It tastes like wine. But as God sees it through the gift of wisdom, it is the body and blood of Christ. And so my prayer is to all of us that we may become more faithful in our vows, we may become more simple in our living, and that we may become more wise in searching for Christ. And if we do that, we will receive Jesus with greater intimacy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to you today as your beloved disciples who have come to rest upon your breast at the Last Supper, to stand faithful at the foot of the cross, and so that we may receive you this coming Mass with greater devotion, with greater faith, with greater simplicity, and with the wisdom of the Magi. And we ask you to hear our prayers of our hearts as we pray the prayer you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, I cut the, this uh, conference a little bit short so we can do Q&A if you would like. Um, I'm always amazed when I teach at Pius. Sometimes uh, the way that the, the Spirit works through a student's question, and God knows what's going to come out of my mouth with my answer because there's nothing prepared. And this is, uh, it's always a beauty to see how the Spirit can work in a group. And so I just open it up to you guys. If you have any questions on the liturgy, 
if you have any questions on the spiritual life um, or the moral life or anything, I can't guarantee you that I'll have an answer, but it might be a good discussion, things to think about. Okay, great question. So yesterday I brought up the Eucharistic miracle in Poland. Um, there's not much published about it yet. Um, interesting, when I was in, um, when I was there, I met an, a scientist who came from Australia, and he was writing a book. I don't know if that was two years ago. I don't know if the book was done yet. But he also studied the Eucharistic miracles in um, uh, Argentina. And it's beautiful, this book. It's called, I think, The Reasons to Believe. And this, he wrote this book first, and I think he's going to write a second book. Um, but he was basically an atheist and a scientist. And he started studying these things, and he converted because of this. Um, but if you just Google uh, Eucharistic Miracle in Poland, there might there's some news articles about it. The town is called Lignica, L-E-G-N-I-C-A. And there might be something on the web about it. Oh, yeah, sorry. I I didn't. um, Yeah, actually, so we stayed there at the parish that that happened at. And off to the side of the altar, they kind of have, like, what we'd have a monstrance, but they have the little Eucharistic miracle, and you can come up and venerate it. And so, yeah, we were there every single day. I did my holy hour in front of this Eucharistic miracle um, for six days. And the priest that was there, um, Father Andre, he couldn't speak English, but fortunately we have Google Translate, and he could just tell something into Google Translate, and we can kind of understand what he was talking about. And so it was just this, this great experience of being there and to see how Jesus came not to the faithful part of Poland, but he came to the part where it needed the faith the most. And so just being there in that presence, it was an immense, tremendous gift. Spirit Catholic Radio has some handouts, and I think, you know, the, the common ones are like the one in um, Lanciano in Italy. Uh, there's a one in um, uh, Portugal. Uh, the one in Portugal? Santorem, yes. Yes, that's a, it's a beautiful, um, I've been there too. It's, it's an amazing gift. It, you guys probably remember this story when um, it's Pope Benedict uh, Pope Benedict came to the United States, and of course, the, the the famous was when he had his his birthday party with George W. And um, but before that, he went to the seminary, and um, they had to sweep all the, the they had to go through all the seminary to to make sure that there was no intruders or you know anything possibly bad that would happen. And so the, the Secret Service goes ahead, and this happened, I think, a couple of days before they were testing out this whole seminary. You guys heard this story before. Um, and the Secret Service have these dogs, and the dogs can sniff, you know, human beings and try to... And the whole seminary was empty. They had to empty it, except these two Secret Service guys and their dogs. And they walk by the chapel, and they go directly into the chapel, and, of course, the dog's trained to point, and they lay down right in front of the altar saying, there's someone in there. All of creation shall worship the Lord, right? Okay, good. So um, Martin Luther's definition of the Eucharist versus the Catholic um, definition of Eucharist. So if you know anything about church history, Martin Luther obviously is kind of the, considered the founder of the Protestant revolt. And his first big beef was uh, he wanted to have, it's by faith alone and not by works. And so, and then when the church is like, you know what, look here in the book of James, faith without works is dead. So he's like, okay, well, wait, um, I'll just throw James out. (laughs) No, no, Martin, you can't throw books of the Bible out if they disagree with you. Uh, He's like, well, um, I don't agree with what the church says. So then his second major theology was Scripture alone, Bible alone. So Protestantism is based on faith alone first and Scripture alone second. And so what they wanted to do is basically downplay the role of the authority of the church and the hierarchy of the church. And so it's not the power of the priest 
that changes the body and blood to Jesus, but it's the power of the lips of the believer. So instead of transubstantiation, that by the power of the Holy, the priest calls down the Holy Spirit, says the words of Jesus, and at that moment, the bread and wine are transformed, changed into the body and blood of Christ. Martin Luther believes, no, it's just a, it was just a symbol and that the priest or the Lutheran minister would give it to the, the, the believers. And when they come up and receive communion, when their faith touches the tongue or when their tongue touches the, the bread, that's when it is changed. So Lutherans believe in somewhat of a real presence, but it's not because they've totally broken away from what Jesus has commanded them to do, right? So that's kind of the basic um, theology of Lutheranism. And some other traditional Protestants will believe in a quasi-real presence. It's by your, by your belief it's changed. Others believe in the power of the Spirit is there, but it's really not the body and blood of Christ, but his Spirit is there. And then others believe it's just a mere symbol. Okay. The difference is like when the priest says, this is my body. I mean, it's a declarative statement. Like, this is Jesus. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I'm either a liar or it's Jesus. So they believe, we believe in transubstantiation. They believe in consubstantiation with so with your faith, it's transformed. Good question. Other questions? Yes, yeah, so Larry's asking the question about the Knights of Columbus has you go through the safe environment training and background check. Are you talking about the national level or the state? Okay, so the National Knights of Columbus says if you're going to do any kind of, is it working with children or is it with any parish obligations? Okay, so the Knights of Columbus is like, okay, if you're going to work anything with youth, whether that means like the basketball or a fish fry and you have youth there, in order to work, you have to go through what's called the safe environment training. Um, and they probably have something on their website for all Knights of Columbus to, to submit and, and go through. And um, the Diocese of Lincoln has, and I don't know if they go through the same company, we recently changed as um, here a month ago. So there's a new um, format. The background check and I think the in safe environment, they're, they're together. And it's usually paid for by your uh, parish. So um, in order to complete it, that you have a coordinator at your parish or someone, whether it's your secretary, someone in your parish is kind of in charge to make sure that everyone's gone through the training. And then they submit that to the diocese. And then I get a record of which lectors and acolytes have completed that. Um, you know, it's a sad world that we live in when, you, you know, we have to do a lot of these um, trainings and stuff. And it's necessary, though, and it used to be necessary only for working with youth, but we've found in recent church scandals that any time you're in a position of authority, whether it's a youth or not, if you, you abuse your power, say you're taking you know, communion to the homebound and the sick, well, you're alone there one-on-one -on -one with someone, and you could abuse your power um, to do something, whether that means take steal something or, you know, assault the person. And so the, the safe environment isn't just for youth anymore. It's, it's basically our understanding that we, have, that we have a duty and an obligation to respect each individual person who has made the image and likeness of God. And so um, it's, it's to kind of help train for that. Um, so everyone, acolytes um, has to, electors have to go through that if they're part of the church. Um, ministry teams now so and then um whether you have to if you've done it in the past if you have to do it again i i don't know but at pious all the teachers had to do it in the past now they went, switched over to a new program and we had an email you have to do this new program again so i think that it might be coming 
um, I will check into that and I will let all the pastors know. So. We have a record, and this is the difficulty, and I think this is where I need it. It's on my ownership. Um, we have records going back to the 1970s, hard copies. We know how many people have ever been installed. We don't know who is still currently active, who is deceased, or who has moved away. And so we haven't moved to the electronical stuff for that yet. And the reason, I think, partially is because we, we moved over to what's called Parish Soft um, a few years ago, the whole diocese. So we have all the sacramental records. That's more important. And so people's address and contact and sacramental records. Here in the next few years, we have to move in the diocese-wide to get to ministry records, whether that's lector, acolytes, cantors, ushers, and that way we just have a system in place. Yeah, and it kind of explains there in that the handbook there, the history of it, when um, the minor orders were suppressed. They're like, well, we don't really need porters anymore, people that stand by the door and open the door. But we still need people that possibly help out with communion and to read, you know, from the epistles in the Old Testament. And so they took all those different minor orders and said, well, these are the only two that we can actually have a, that we need. Other dioceses had said, you know what, we don't really need instituted men. The church is moving in the direction to um, allow women to do a lot more at the altar. So let's, let's let women do a lot of this. Women can't be priests, but let's women do everything else. So you, it's not uncommon. You go to some, some parts of the country, everyone on the altar is the woman except the priest. You know, um, you know altar servers, that wasn't really um, allowed um, and the United States had done it even before the church allowed it. This is sometimes with the difficulties of the bishops. The bishops um, in different countries will start experimenting and doing things. And then it becomes kind of like the general norm in that country. And then, oh, by the way, then they'll petition the Rome and say, hey, we've been doing this for 10, 15 years. We think you should allow us a chance to, to have altar servers now. And so then Rome's like, well, okay, I guess, you know. Um, same with communion on the hands. That wasn't really a thing um, that was allowed until recently, until the United States bishops started experimenting with that. But I digress. Uh, I just echo the words of uh, St. Paul in his letter to Timothy, right? What you've seen and heard from me, and trust to faithful men who can teach others as well. Um, to find those faithful men in your parishes, I tell pastors, what's good criteria to look for for lectors and acolytes? Are the men faithful? Do they follow the church's teaching? Do they come to Mass? Are they faithful to their vows? Are they available? Sometimes it's the availability. You know, you have, I, I know some great guys in our parish at the cathedral, but they might have like, 10 kids, and they're like, oh, I'm not going to leave my wife in the pew with 10 kids. She needs a little help. And so they're just not available right now. Um, but are, they, are they leaders? Do people want to follow them? Um, and then thirdly, are they, or fourthly, are they teachable? You know, um, can they come and learn? When Father Rare and Father Coulter asked me to do this, I was a little hesitant because I didn't know. He said that last time, they've tried to do this last three years, they didn't get enough guys interested in signing up. And I said, well, <laughs> there's not going to be enough guys signing up if they learn I'm doing it because I've never given a retreat. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I, uh, I'm like, well, my hope was, was twofold for this retreat. First of all, to have pastors back it. And I said, would you as pastors, and I talked to the pastors during the deanery meetings, would you as pastors sponsor one acolyte and one lector in your parish to come on this retreat Let's use the retreat to train one guy in a parish, maybe two, to go back to their parishes, and then they can train other lectors and acolytes. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. But the pastors are like, uh, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> okay, I understand. Well, we didn't, they didn't want to. 
So there wasn't a much support from the pastors was one thing. And I understand they got other financial things, and they, they've, they're still doing it in the old model way. Um, but what we need to do is to have training and more on a local level. Um, and so what this retreat should be is to supplement the leaders in the parishes so that they can go back and train other guys in their parish. So my challenge could be to each of us here is, do you guys have monthly meetings with your acolytes, whether it's in your parish or in your deanery? Because that was one of the stipulations in the Steward of the Mysteries. The diocese said, if you're a lector or acolyte, you should have ongoing formation, either monthly or quarterly. Now, I know the cathedral does, um, and I don't know how many other parishes do. I know when I was at St. Michael, we met maybe twice a year, but that's not nearly enough. Um, So you as acolytes can get your guys together and say, hey, why don't we do a Bible study? And you could take those resources from that handout that I gave you, and you could use those resources and say, hey, let's do a Lenten Bible study together. And maybe your parish only has four acolytes, so that's good. Four guys is a great number for a Bible study, but maybe you're from a rural parish and you want to do it with, within your deanery and you get like acolytes to meet at the local uh, pub or something in the deanery to have a, a, a pint and a discussion about um, the faith. Just a suggestion. Um, so, yeah. One percent. When I was named the director of lecture acolyte training, um, it was, there, was, there was nothing, really. It's like, okay, well, you can kind of do your own little training here, do, you know, have guys come teach lecture-style class at the cathedral. And so I thought, well, I mean, my main job was to create a curriculum. And so I put together a curriculum that we went through last year at, on a deanery level in Lincoln, and I sent it out to the other deans, and they could use that same curriculum or they could modify it, whatever they want. But then um, my role is to kind of systemize not just the training, because there's no way I can train. We had 75 acolytes installed last year. There's no way I could train 75 guys. But to put together a handbook that can get that pastors can use, and then they can give it to their acolytes, or they could use it for their training. Now, the format... It still has to go through the liturgical commission to be approved yet. Um, and so we might put it into a booklet format. We might pull some of the stuff out of there, like the forms, and more of a, a book that you can hand to the acolytes. Um, that's why I just give it to, gave it to you guys say, hey, give me some feedback. Um, I met with one of you this morning and gave me great feedback. Here's some things that can be edited. I'm like, good. I'm I was an ag science major, (laughs) not an English major. And so writing's not, or speaking's my forte. So any feedback you can give, I appreciate. Feel free to take it to your pastors and get your pastor's feedback. I mean, if you want to give it to the other acolytes, I don't know if we're quite there yet, but um, give it to your pastors and see what they they think. Um, And I think that's where the hope is that the handbook can, can be kind of a resource the reality is, like, there's only so much of Brother Michael. I don't know if he can go around to every parish, but he could get, like, a deanery. Like, you guys are in York Deanery? Um, you know, you could get all the different parishes, acolytes, and do, like, a one night in the York Deanery. And maybe that'd be something that the knights um, would be interested in doing. I would love to do it myself. I wish I could... I wish I could spend more time just doing liturgical formation, but I also am in charge of fundraising for the diocese, and I teach, and I'm taking education classes to get my master's in, as administrator at school. So we don't have, the trouble is with the diocese, we don't have a liturgical office where most dioceses have a liturgical office headed by a priest with another secretary that can kind of oversee everything. We don't have that. We run like a low budget, which is good. We're efficient. We're conservative but we're also lacking some resources. But that's why the hope is to get it on the parish level. You guys in your parishes are leaders. You can take the, that handbook and say, well, let's open up. Let's, let's read this book or this document together with our acolytes. And so it's just kind of giving you the tools to go and do it. So the question is, you know, uh, do we do it like the handbook says and how we've been trained, or do we kind of follow what our pastors, our pastors want? And the short is, you know, you follow your pastors. You're there to serve him. And, um, you know, little things. 
I mean, they're just little things. It doesn't, it's not going to change the validity of the mass. Now, if your pastor's bringing up Coca-Cola and Chips Ahoy cookies to be consecrated, you'd be like, okay, we got to stop this. <laughs> okay. But if your pastor's like, um, yeah, I don't mind if you put the, the patent on the corporal at the beginning of the offertory. I mean, it's, that's a little thing. Um, it, I was trained, and if you look at the rubrics, it says the priest takes the patent, lifts it up, and says the prayers, and then places it on the corporal. I mean, it, it's it, how you hold the book, whether the acolyte holds the book or the uh, server holds the book. That's pastoral preference. It does say um, in there that, you know, the acolyte, because he's kind of um, in charge of setting up the missile, he should also be the one probably holding the book for the opening prayer and the closing prayer. I am myself am a firm believer in the role of acolyte in ministry um, for two r- main reasons. Um, the first is your witness to the lay people. Okay? You're up there giving a physical witness of your love and devotion to Jesus. The second is your assistant to the, assistance to the priests. And I'm not just me- talking about liturgical assistance. When I became a deacon at St. Joe's, and I know a couple of you are St. Joe's parishioners, um, Monsignor Barr at that time was gone in Ireland for five of the eight weeks I was there. I had no clue what was going on. I didn't know where anything was. But fortunately, I had some good acolytes like Steve back there, Bill Stoll, and other guys who can just take me under their wings and show me this is how we do it here at our parish. This is where everything's at. I mean, Bill Stoll took me to the nursing homes to show me how he... I'd do communion calls. I was never even trained. I was trained by an acolyte to do communion calls. You know, and so your ministry is important, especially to, for young priests that are coming in, because maybe their pastors aren't going to be that excited about training them or showing them, and they don't have the good communication skills between the pastor and assistants. And so the assistants are going to look a lot towards you as leaders in the parish, how you do things, and they're going to relate to you. So thank you for your, your ministry, for me as a, a priest and a deacon, but then also as your witness to the laity. Okay, so obviously um, the priest is the one who is in the Oron's position, right, opening up. Everyone else in the, the pew should be like this, okay? Um, especially at the, at the, around the altar, no servers, acolytes, even a deacon can do what the priest is doing. Because you cannot mimic and look like you're con-celebrating. Even when I'm emceeing as a priest, or emceeing uh, with the bishop's mass, I am a priest, and it's really hard for me because I hear my brother priest, they're saying the words, I am not even speaking those words. I'm not even going like this. Even though I have the right to, I could, but because I chose to emcee the Mass, I'm not celebrating the Mass, I don't even do the actions of the priest. It shows the distinction that we are all one body, but we have different parts, different roles to fulfill. I don't answer myself when I say, the Lord be with you and with my spirit. <laughs> I mean, that's your, your guys' response. Um, I didn't really talk about this, but the different Eucharistic prayers, one, two, three, and four, um, <laughs> I could get myself into trouble here, but I got to. Um, there's there's a person that um, at one of the parishes I've been at, and that you probably don't even know who it is. So I'm not not worried about this, but um, this older lady, and she would say the prayers verbally of the Eucharistic prayers, and it would be extremely distracting. I kind of zone things out, but other people purposely don't sit by her because they've told me, Father. It's really annoying. She's doing the same things you are doing, and she's saying the same words. I said, okay, I will fix it. I'm like, but I didn't know who it was. I couldn't go up and tell her because I didn't know who it was. I kind of hear something, and so I I don't know who it is. So I'm like, well, in the back, there's Eucharistic prayers for various needs, one, two, three, and four. (laughs) She didn't know those words. It fixed the problem, so. Oh, man, it's... But, anyways, I digress.
Yeah, I do it in Latin. Yeah, my Latin's not that good. I only had one year. The, John Paul II, most, most, and this is kind of splitting hairs here, um, many Mariologists believe that John Paul II did consecrate Russia to Mary. So it's been done. But there are some people that don't believe he did the actual prayers that were asked. So it hasn't been. So it's just a debate. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I'm qualified to speak on whether or not he fulfilled the obligations. But I think, I think he did. Um, you know, I was in Russia this last year. Um, I went to St. Petersburg. And it's amazing to see the Russian faith is, is coming back um, after what communism had tried to do. Now, it's the Russian Orthodox, um, but there are some, the, the, churches are, the Orthodox churches are becoming filled again. And so um, there's hope that the consecration is working. So... But the difficulty is, even with Russia, and this gets into the politics of the church... Even the Orthodox have separated themselves from the Russians. I mean, the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox are no longer in uh, an ecumenical communion. And so that break happened within this last year. So it's like, yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of difficulty um, still healing that needs to be done in Russia. And Pope Francis has reached out to the Russians um, and met with them, which is a, it's a huge step. Um, it's also a delicate step because with diplomacy, you also can't throw the Ukrainians or the Byzantines underneath the bus because there are many Ukrainians and Byzantine Catholics who feel, and Polish Catholics who feel like they have been persecuted even by the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, yeah. So the first, and we didn't really talk about it much because it, it changes. So the opening prayer, okay, um, is... Right, after, right before the, the readings, okay? The second prayer, the second oration, second prayer, happens right before the preface. And then the third oration, third prayer, um, happens right before the final blessing. And so these, these three prayers kind of change throughout, um, throughout the liturgical season, whether they're more directed you know, towards penance during Advent and Lent, or uh, more so during Lent, if they're directed more towards like the coming of the Spirit after Easter, before Pentecost. And so these, these prayers kind of change. So I didn't really focus a whole lot on the parts of Mass that change um, in any of the talks, but that's what those, those mean. So that's usually when the acolyte holds the book or the lector holds the book, those, those prayers. And, and some of them are extremely beautiful. Uh, the Marian prayers... There's a little blue missile, and I don't know if any of your pastors use this. Uh, it's called the Marian Missile. There's some Marian masses, and those prayers to Mary in the preface are some of the most beautiful prayers of the church. And then there are other prayers um, that you're like scratching your head. You're like, who the heck wrote that? Namely, on the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. It doesn't mention the name Jesus once in any of three of the prayers. You're like, wait, it's the holy name of Jesus. Say his name. But I I mean, obviously, someone who's a liturgist gets paid more money than I do to write those. So. Okay, good. So you bring up a, a term, what's called invalid and illicit. Invalid means that there, the mass didn't come because the priest didn't say the right words. Or he didn't use the right material. Okay? He didn't use bread and wine. Or he didn't say the right words. Illicit means Jesus came, but he's not happy. Right? Um, it means basically the priest did something wrong or said the wrong prayers. Um, it's illicit. Now, there's voluntary illicitness, which, mean, which is a sin. The priest is like, you know what? I really don't like that prayer. I'm going to say the fourth week in ordinary time instead of the second week in ordinary time this weekend. Okay, That would be a sin for a priest to do it. Now, Jesus still comes. People still get the grace. Um, sometimes you do it on accident. 
Um, I, this, ha- this happened to me so, several times. You know, it's 6 a.m. in the morning <laughs> at the cathedral, and um, you're like, okay, is it the 15th Sunday in Ordinary Time or the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time? You know, like, I know I prayed my morning prayer, but I wasn't paying that close attention what Sunday it is. And like, 15th, 16th, you know, and it's like, do you just go with one? And then, um, you know, I was at a Mass. Um, I was celebrating the Mass, and um, some of you guys know the, the priest father, um, um, Jim Kettle. Um, and anyways, he was, he was con-celebrating Mass with me. And afterwards, he's like, he comes up to me, and he's like, um, "I'm worried that you didn't sell, you didn't actually fulfill the intention of mass because um, you didn't say the actual words of Jesus." And I was horrified. I'm like, "Did I say the words wrong?" And I mean, I, I went to confession, and I'm like, "I don't know what's going on." Well, then I was like, very intentional, listening to the words that I say. And he was, he's not from Nebraska. He's from another part of the country. And he was celebrating Mass with me again a few months later. And he said, hey, um, Father, I, I, think, I think you missed this word. And I'm like, and it dawned on me what he was hearing. When, when I say the words, um, the, and shall be lifted up, we conjure, and I don't know if we do this in Nebraska or if this is my thing, I say, lift it up. It's like one word run together. Other, other word is like very distinct. And he thought I was missing the word up. He didn't hear the word up. And so, therefore, it'd make the mass invalid because I've missed the one word of institution that's important. And so I told him, like, no, 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 I, I say the word. I just, I, I need to be more distinct and break the word up, but it runs together. So... Do priests ever ask acolytes to assist in exorcism? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, not, we, do, we do have two exorcists, and it's always good for um, an exorcist to bring someone else with them. And if there's not like another priest or religious, they could ask an acolyte um, to come with them. So, yeah, it's not... Out of the possibility. Thank you, gentlemen.